Another race pitcher's tipping pitches as Rich Hill gives up four runs on three home runs in the first two innings in our nation's capital. And the Rays lose to the Nationals 4-3. to three. After the game, Rich said he was tipping pitches. It was pretty obvious. Uh, after about two innings, they figured it out, and he stopped putting his hand over his head and delivering to the plate. And he pitched very well from there on out. Uh, it was scoreless after that. Uh, kept them in the game, and, and the Rays battled back. It was 4 nothing early. They kept chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. Rosarina, home run among others, but the Rays end up going down 4-3. to three. So I'm Steve Ersnick filling in for Rick Stroud, who's still on vacation, but a special treat you're going to get to hear from him in just a minute. Uh, he Before he left for vacation, sat down with Sam Farmer, the longtime NFL uh, writer for the Los Angeles Times, also covers golf, among many other things, a longtime friend of Rick's. They sat down and talked about uh, some golf stuff, but also Sam Farmer was in Bruce Arians' living room the day after the Super Bowl here in Tampa, so he talk, talks about that story and, and some other insight into Bruce Arians and this Bucks team and uh, Tom Brady, et cetera. So you get to hear that, but um, wanted to update you on the Rays. And then uh, for the Lightning, Game 2 of the Stanley Cup final will be tonight against Montreal. John Cooper saying Alex Kalorn is very much considered day-to-day. Hard to tell if he'll be in the lineup tonight. So that's something to watch for. He blocked a shot in the second period and uh, wasn't able to finish the game after that. Uh, kind of hit off his ankle, leg, lower part of uh, the body there. Uh, he was without a stick, gave his stick to Hedman, then dove down, blocked a shot. So uh, Alex Kalorn, very much a game-time decision for tonight or a game-day decision. Uh, he's considered day-to-day as far as injury goes, which I guess is better than uh, out. So uh, And the Rays, uh, they'll wrap up their two-game series in the nation's capital with a 4 o'clock start today. So uh, it's kind of a doubleheader for Tampa Bay today. You get to watch the Rays at 4 o'clock. In D.C., and then at 8 o'clock, you have the Canadians and the Lightning from Amelie Arena. So, But without further ado, here's Rick Stroud with his good friend, Sam Farmer. All right, we're joined by my good friend, Sam Farmer of the L.A. Times, who is uh, doing everything from the U.S. Open. Of course, you read about him on the NFL and football all the time. Sam, you had a, you had a tweet uh, just the other day that, that I wanted to pick up on. And, uh, of course, you were at the Super Bowl. In fact, you were in Bruce Arians' living room the day after the Super Bowl. And you talked about what a story this guy is. Uh, I think he's putting together a Hall of Fame resume. Just tell me, you, you mentioned who, who would do this guy in the movie. I mean, his life is sort of playing out like a movie at this point. It's really incredible, Rick. I mean, when you think that uh... – you know, he had retired after the Steelers, you know, the Steelers showed him the door. And I think, um, I think the reason they did that is they looked at his relationship with Ben Roethlisberger and saw how close they were. And then they mm-hmm. looked at, at Tom Brady, um, and sort of his, uh, Josh McDaniels relationship. And, and they, they wanted a guy who was going to push Ben more maybe, and maybe, maybe be butt heads with him a little more. So, you know, so Bruce thought, hey, I'll retire. And then he, he gets talked into going back to the Colts. And I mean, it's just a, it's an amazing story, this, this second chapter, or maybe third chapter of his career. Um, and, and I agree with you. I think he's put together a, a Hall of Fame resume. And even if you go back to, to his years as an assistant coach, uh, it's pretty remarkable the stuff that he did. So I don't know who would play him in the movie, but it's got a Disney Disney feel uh, <laughs> to him. And I think 
you know, does does he need to win another Super Bowl? I don't know. I mean, he's been coach of the year twice uh, in two different places, only interim guy to win it. And then to win the way he has in Tampa and, you know, win it on your home field, it's just a, it's a remarkable story. And to be a, the, the media darling that he is, I mean, it's uh, it's incredible. But um, so I'm sitting here. If you hear stuff in the background, I'm at the U.S. Open at, at Torrey Pines in the media tent and uh, uh, just taking a little break uh, from the course. And uh, I had a fun. I'll tell you a funny story. I uh, so I covered the the Masters uh, a couple of months ago. And if you cover the Masters, and Rick, you know this, uh, if you're a golfer, you can put, a reporter, you put your name in the lottery, and they'll pull, say, 15 names per year um, who get to play the course on Monday, uh, play Augusta. And not only do you get to play it, but you get to use the champion blocker room uh, and you use the the players practice facility. So they really roll out the red carpet and you get the full Augusta experience. Well, I won it this year and uh, got to play Augusta. And so I, uh, I was so excited and everything and I'm out there on the range and I can feel like a kind of a strange sensation, like a little soreness in my right elbow. And, uh, but I, dismiss it and we go out on the course and I play the first hole and really poorly I think I doubled the first hole I you know just kind of sliced it off the tee and but I get up there at the second hole I take my first swing and or, or or drive the ball and I get this really sharp pain in my right elbow like sharper than anything I've ever had and I can't swing the club after that. I mean, it's like the cruelest fate. I literally cannot swing with my right arm. Oh, man. And so I'm trying to, like, swing with one hand, and here I am playing Augusta, the second hole. Uh, you know, I mean, could this have at least have happened on the back nine or on 17 <laughs> or something? So it's the second hole, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I can't swing the club. This has never happened to me. I'm not a great golfer, but I've always been able to swing. Um, so I kind of pot around on the, on the front nine. We've got caddies and other guys in my group. And, and then on eight, I walk up to the, to the turn, to the clubhouse, to the pro shop. And I ask, do you guys have one of those arm straps? Like, a uh, that I can sort of batten down my forearm, forearm strap. And I grab a bunch of a leave, I, like OD on a leave. And I get this strap and sort of lock down my forearm. And then I can sort of halfway swing on the, on the back nine, but it's really painful. And uh, I get to 16 and, and I parred 16. And once I parred 16, the one, the hole that Xander Shoffley blew up on this year, right. I just, uh, I, I called it a day. You know, I just putted the rest of the way. So I get home to LA and it's still sort of sore. And a buddy of mine is an orthopedic surgeon. He says, hey, let's come in and check it out. I, it winds up, I tore the flexor tendon in my in my right arm, which they call a golfer's elbow. So I had to have surgery. So I got a five-inch uh, five scar that runs sort of across my elbow now. 
And uh, so I have the best war wound, war wound from Augusta. And, you know, it's funny because people have asked me about it, you know, and they said, well, you played? I'm like, I mean, it wasn't so bad, but of course I play it up now like I'm Pat Tillman. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I parred 16 with this elbow, you know? Yeah, exactly. It was so heroic. But but I have a a very expensive um, souvenir from Augusta. That's uh, that's better than a hat. Um, yeah, so I've, Did, I've I've been showing it off around the press room here. Now, does that does that affect your typing at all? Because you wouldn't know you're playing hurt when I read your columns. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, actually, it did affect my typing for a while when I was in a an arm cast for ten days. <laughs> so I was in an arm cast, and uh, I'm sitting in a one of these glass booths and. Mark Canazero has commandeered this booth, so I'm going to have to move That's over. <laughs> and he's kicking me out, so I'm going to move okay. over to another glass booth. Hold on one second. I'll sit in this one. Somebody else's <laughs> computer here. Um, yeah, so I I, uh, I didn't go to the PGA because of my arm, so uh, I did. Uh, and that can kind of segue into Tom Brady because uh, yeah. I did watch Phil from the comfort of my couch uh, mm-hmm. at Kiwa Island. And I actually reached out to Tom uh, on Saturday when Phil, at 50 years old, was uh, the oldest third-round leader of a major championship. And so I reached out to Tom Brady, who not only plays with him in the match, but, you know, having been the oldest player to play in a Super Bowl or win a Super Bowl uh, just a few months earlier, might have some perspective on that. Yeah, and in fact, I mean, I, I thought Mickelson's answer was tremendous, you know, uh, because they did play in the match, and, and uh, when he's around Tom as a golf partner, as they have been before, and with what Tom's doing, he says that he's actually, I don't know if inspired is the word, but maybe, uh, you know, has, has done some things, uh, whether it's the, you know, the meditation or the plyometrics, I mean, look, I don't know really what's harder. One is a team sport, obviously, but, you know, winning a major tournament at age 50 or a Super Bowl at 43? Yeah, I mean, they're both uh, just the just the abuse that your body has to uh, endure in football. It would seem that 43 uh, and winning a Super Bowl would be a bigger deal, but we've seen guys who are, are approaching 40 or, uh, you know, Peyton and 2016, uh, seeing guys done that, it's it's remarkable to me that it never happened in golf, that nobody had ever even led a major championship after three rounds uh, at the age of 50 or older. So um, they're both pretty remarkable feats. Uh, uh, it's funny, I talked to both Peyton and Tom last year after the, uh, after the match and sort of how things went sideways for Tom and then uh, how he holed out. uh, I think it was maybe the sixth hole um, uh, hold out and sort of turn it around and on the back, play better on the back. But one of the funny stories that Peyton talks about, um, and maybe this has made it the rounds, maybe it hasn't, but you know, we all know that Tom bent over and he tore his pants. Mm -hmm. Um, 
after he after he holed out, well, he went to Peyton. He said, you know, hey, can you help me out? I got a big tear on the back of my pants. <laughs> and uh, uh, Peyton said, I had uh, arrived at the course thinking it was going to be nice weather, but it was really rainy. And so I spent 250 bucks on a uh, rain suit. And they're both six five guys. And he said, in the pro shop, I bought a $250 rain suit. So I wound up giving him my pants from the rain suit. And Tom played with those. But Peyton said, you know, you'd think the guy would pay me back for them. He owes me 125 bucks. <laughs> he never said, he told me he would pay me. But he said, so next time you talk to Tom, tell him he owes me 125 bucks. And you think. These guys who make who make you know whatever fifty million a year with endorsements sure. and everything, they're haggling over hundred twenty bucks. He was half kidding, only half yeah. kidding. The, uh, the the back and forth of, of of the match is what makes it so great, and and we can talk about you know what's coming up uh, with with Aaron Rodgers and Bryson DeChambeau and, and Mickelson yeah. are going to play that in Montana on July July sixth. I wanted to ask you because you you know you've you've followed Brady obviously all these years won all these Super Bowls um and, and I I got to see it for the first time up close when he when he came to Tampa. First of all, I I didn't know, you know, I always say here in Tampa we can't have nice things. Now we're Tampa Bay. We can't stop winning, right? But um but <laughs> as, as the case may be, um you know, it, it it was it was sort of a surprise at least to me that he would that he would choose. I know at one point, I think the Chargers uh, were an option for him, or some some team that he was talking to. Mm-hmm. Clearly, um, but but he comes here and, and during a pandemic, uh, doesn't know anybody. Going back to Arians and that relationship with Peyton Manning, clearly he did his homework. And Arians is about 180 degrees away from Bill Belichick, right? I mean, he's win or lose, we yeah. booze, baby. But he's also a guy that. Um, you know, coaches coaches guys hard. I mean, he's from the Bear Bryant school of coaching them, coach them up hard and hug them later. And that got to be a thing really after week one when Brady threw a couple of interceptions and, and he called him out for it as he would pretty much any player. Um, but I, I think that, that, you know, what what do you think Brady was looking for? And, and, and at this point in his career, I don't think he could play for almost any coach, but I think this was the right guy at this point of his life. No, I think, and you make a great point. I think you're talking about polar opposites uh, with Bill and Bruce, and um, that's got to be so liberating. Uh, to, and, and I think that Brady maybe knew and wanted Bruce to call him out uh, in those situations because that shows mm-hmm. uh, the entire team, listen, this is not a star system, and right. I'm going to get called out, and um I think uh, Bruce wouldn't have done that had he thought that it would create real issues in his team. Uh, but it, it strengthens the team and it normalizes Tom Brady to get called out just like everybody else. And so I think that was a really positive moment. And, um, you know, as as much as you talk about guys who are in the same system for 20 years or any number of years, more than a decade in the same system and what an advantage that is, that's also an extreme disadvantage when you're coming to a brand new system. I mean, if you look at 
a guy like Justin Herbert, for instance, um, who had a great rookie year, uh, really, from, and they didn't even expect him to start as early as he did. He had four different systems at Oregon, and that was a real strength. Uh, once you've played in a number of systems, we saw that with Alex Smith very early in his career, um, shows your ability to adapt and adjust and everything. And for Brady, it's sort of the opposite, and that he was in the same system for so long um, that uh, it makes it very difficult to go to a new system if you're grooved like that, I would think. But in terms of the uh, the freedom to speak your mind, that's got to feel so liberating. Uh, yes, he could do it at New England, and, and yes, uh, he obviously thrived under that structure. But uh, at the end of your career, when you just want to sort of exhale and really soak it in and enjoy it, um, it was a it was a great situation. And I think he also looked and said, where does my family want to be? Where mm. What works best for my family and my wife? And um, I don't think coming to L.A. was the, um, the end-all, be-all uh, for the Brady family. And, uh, you know, this Tampa Bay and that situation and, and Bruce and, and just all the weapons that are there, um, it's really exciting for him, and obviously it, it worked. It was the right call. And so, and I, you know, it sort of like ends the or, – or puts a punctuation mark at the argument of who was it? Was it Belichick or was it Brady? Did mm. Belichick make Brady or did Brady make Belichick? Well, if you look at this last season, that's a, a pretty convincing argument. So what a great situation for him. You know what's interesting, Sam, is that um, and, and I'm kind of, I mean, again, in New England, right? A lot of things happen, mostly winning. But you know, you had Spygate, you had Deflategate. Um, outside of the New England area, I would think that people there was Brady fatigue, and and that people, um, you know, probably almost that he was a bit of a villain. I would imagine, you know, certainly in Indianapolis and other places, that they didn't like him. Um, but I think he was almost because we got to see another side of him. In other words, um, he's still Tom Brady. Trust me. I do the press conferences, but, um, a little more open on social media, a little more human, even in just, you know, what he did at the match and ripping his pants and self-deprecating and all of that. Um, and certainly, you know, the, the, the boat parade with the tequila vodka was, was humanizing. But I, think, <laughs> was I, 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 I mean, I do, I do think that, that everybody has got to see, I, I think it's actually, if, if this is possible, I think it's helped his image and made him, uh, more lovable perhaps. Yeah. I mean, I think when people are humanized like that and, yeah. uh, and, they don't seem like cardboard cutouts. Uh, and, and yeah, every, there was big-time Patriot fatigue. Uh, everybody felt it. And, um, you know, whether it was the scandals or just the sort of automatons that, that uh, Bill Belichick turns the players into with their answers, and you never talk about anybody else. You only talk about yourself, and you talk about all getting better. I mean, they're the, the, the sort of – uh, legendary stories about Bill Belichick sitting in front of the team with a stack of newspapers and reading their quotes out loud back to them and then ripping them, if, ripping players who uh, stray at all from the party line. Um, mm. 
you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's got to be just completely reinvigorating for a guy like Tom Brady to play for a Bruce Arians, uh, where obviously winning is important and you're ultra competitive and all those things. Uh, you're not compromising there, but you've got a guy who's far more relaxed about stuff and, and um, doesn't try to control you uh, and allows you to sort of reinvent yourself. And we're watching the reinvention of Tom Brady and uh, so far so good. I mean, he is uh, fun to watch and, and uh, doing amazing things. And so, uh, and I can see that I can see him being even better this year, the second year in a system and, um, you know, getting everybody back, having all those weapons. Uh, it's really scary. And you, and you look at the, at the division and so much upheaval, in the division um, at the quarterback position. And just, um, I mean, I could, I could see the Bucks going back to back. Mm. Well, it hasn't been done. And since a guy named Tom Brady did it back in 03 and 04. So he certainly yeah. uh, has, has, has that recipe. I would say don't discount the saints and, and Sean Payton. I, I covered Jameis Winston. He's immensely talented. He throws the ball to the wrong team. I don't know if you can coach that out of him. But I do know that Sean Payton is about eight and one with backup quarterbacks the last two years. So, um, you know, I, yeah. I, I still think they could get it done. Yeah, and uh, and it's interesting the stuff going on in in Carolina. I think uh, under Scott Fitter there, uh, I have a huge amount of respect for Scott and, and uh, his know how. Um, in assembling teams, uh, well, I think he'll be able the team he'll. I believe he'll be able to assemble. He played a huge role in Seattle. Um, right. That's an interesting team. And then, you know, who knows with Atlanta, uh, what's right. going to happen there. But but in a, in a larger sense, Buccaneers have Tom Brady. And yeah. they have those that's receivers. And, you know, yeah. we're talking about the whole league. And uh, they're going to be in the mix for sure. Yeah, I would imagine so. You, I was jealous about this, but you, after the Super Bowl, were in Bruce Arians' living room. Not everyone can say that, right? Uh, here's the guy that yeah. waited his whole career to win a Super Bowl, and it's the day after the night after. And uh, I, I got to believe um, that that had to be pretty remarkable. His his family was, was uh, on their way out of town, but they had spent one hell of a night together. What was that like? T- take me inside there and tell me just just sort of what what it was like to be with Arians as he as he sort of reflected the day after. Yeah, no, it was it was really uh, it was fun to go over there and, and meet and and probably a once in a career type thing because we're talking about going over to um, the winning coach's house, uh, which y- you by definition could not have done before uh, this year because the winning coach and and the coaches were not playing in their hometown. And Mm. so just to be out there with him tossing the ball around with his grandkids and pushing the swing and people driving by and doing the triple takes and almost rear ending parked cars thinking, (laughs) is that coach of the winning Super Bowl team out in the front yard? Uh, I mean, I recognize that Kangle. Um, and then you, you go in the house and he's got, uh, 
uh, items there on the table that he's signing, you know, whether it's jerseys or whatever. And um, he just sat back and, and um, was the Bruce Arians who uh, I've gotten to know over the years, just very relaxed and, and uh, obviously really happy. We sat with Jake, his son, and, and uh, it was, it was uh, a little surreal, surreal, but uh, you know, there's so many great stories about Bruce and, I, I, this, I had sort of laid the groundwork of last decade with Bruce and mm-hmm. getting to know him and playing golf out here in LA, He's a big, obviously a big golfer and, mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, built that, built that friendship over time. I mean, I remember going, uh, when he was in Arizona, they had, uh, uh the team hotel was the high or the Marriott there at the stadium, uh, in Glendale, Arizona. And uh, I remember spending three hours up in his room to get a suite, and he had one of those golden tee video games, you know, with the ball. It's like a, a golf game called golden tee. And you roll the ball uh, like the old football, Atari football games. And uh, I just played that golden tee. It, it, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I did playing the video game. So I guess I kind of got to know him there. And, and uh you know, one of the great stories I love about Bruce um, was his mom, you know, and, and you probably know this, Rick, for the, for the audience, I'll just say, uh, you know, he, he grew up in York, PA, and, and mm-hmm. his mom worked at the York Peppermint Patty Factory. And right. um, she uh, uh, would bring home uh, the reject peppermint patties. And, and uh, one time Bruce was sick and his mom brought home, a, uh, he had a cold or something, and she brought home a what sounded like a grocery bag full of, of uh, peppermint patty rejects. And Bruce just sat there and ate them all, <laughs> got violently ill. And uh, now you can't open, uh, if it's one part per million of peppermint patty, stuff, <laughs> uh, he will become nauseous. So that's his kryptonite for the rest of the <laughs> NFC South if they want to hide a peppermint patty in the locker room uh, because he he cannot stomach the uh, the smell of peppermint patties. So that's his oh. uh, that's a way to take him down. But I, anyway, little I mean Bruce right. just has so many stories like that. Like when he took a bowling class in college and. Uh, uh, you know, worked at a bowling alley and setting up pins. And he said if it was a, a good-looking girl in the class, he'd get a mop, a mop handle from the back of the pins and knock them over, um, <laughs> knock the pins over. And he said and if it was a guy he didn't like, he'd reach and reset up the pins. <laughs> <laughs> the guy might have had a strike. He had a 7-10 split he was looking at for this. <laughs> so it's just such a character. I mean, I love Bruce Arians. He's he's uh, such a good guy and such a treasure trove of stories. No yeah. doubt. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently: Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. 
Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. Well, you are, uh, of course, uh, there in L.A. And, and uh, my, my favorite story, uh, my favorite Sam's Farmer story, and I've told this before uh, with you, but I'll say it again in case people didn't hear the first time we chatted on the podcast, was every year you, you would get one of the first, if not the first question, uh, or one of the first questions at the commissioner's uh, press conference at the Super Bowl, and that was usually the Friday before the game. Yeah. And, of course, for, what, 20-odd years uh, Los Angeles was without a football team. The Raiders had moved out. Obviously, the Rams were in St. Louis. Uh, the Chargers, who are now there, were in uh, San Diego. And you'd always be – your question, your first question was always, hey, Commissioner, and I'm paraphrasing, when is L.A. going to get an NFL team? <laughs> and then, and then of course, the, the Rams uh, came to L.A. again uh, with that beautiful new SoFi Stadium. And then also, here come the Chargers. And so – Take it from there. You had an opportunity when that uh, transaction happened yeah, to speak so to Roger I, Goodell. I sort of had a, um, a capstone question because I thought, now we're getting a charger. So I, I said, Roger, in effect, I said, Roger, uh, when is L.A. going to stop getting NFL teams? <laughs> but I, <laughs> no, but I did have a thought about asking a question this year. Um, <laughs> you know, I, now I was, I'm asking um, – you know, on behalf of, uh, as a proxy for San Diego or whatever. But I, I was, I was thinking about asking this year, Roger, when are the Chargers going to move to LA? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be a little bit of shade towards the Chargers, but very funny nonetheless. Um, listen, yeah. they got a terrific quarterback who almost came in here and, and, and did Tom Brady early in the season. So I think Justin Herbert's going to be great. Um, but yeah, it's yeah. it's a funny story because they're not yeah. they are not LA's team as you well know. I don't think that I don't think LA has adopted the Chargers just yet. No, it's 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 really uh, uh, it's interesting because with relocations and we we both went through a lot of them, uh, various teams. Mm-hmm. It's it's always sort of a zero sum game where you have the team the the. the the city that's losing the team hates them, and the right. team, city that's getting the team loves them. Well, in this mm-hmm. case, the city that's lost the team hates them, and the city that received the team uh, was sort of apathetic. Right. And uh, and so that it's it's strange, uh, difficult to move the needle in L.A. Let's see, I've got a call coming in here. Hold on one second. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Take your um, time. It's no problem. And uh, to cut that one off. Um, and so, yeah, it's, I mean, it's hard enough for the Rams and mm-hmm. uh, to, to sort of generate attention in, in what is really a Dodgers and Lakers town. Um, right. And the Rams have this sort of nostalgic connection to L.A. and historic connection to L.A. And the Chargers really don't even though the Chargers started in L.A. and played their first season in L.A., uh, they were in San Diego for 55 years. They're a San Diego team, so uh, getting people interested has been very difficult. I mean, the new stadium will be a big uh, – I mean, hey, the quarterback is really exciting, mm-hmm. uh, and they've got a talented team. 
and they've got very popular uniforms, and the new stadium is off the charts. It's great. Um, so they have the the ingredients for that cocktail, but L.A. is a different kind of place because in the entire, you know, 20 years that L.A. Uh, was without a team, we saw the advent, the, really the advent of the Internet. Uh, we saw NFL Network. We saw Sunday Ticket. All these things work against having a team in your hometown. And plus, L.A. is a city of transplants. So people bring their own allegiances. So if I'm a Tampa Bay fan, I can follow the team just as closely in L.A. as I can in uh, in Tampa. And on top of that, the rise of fantasy football, uh, which fractures interest, so you're only interested in certain players versus teams. So all those things work against the necessity of having a hometown team. And then the NFL kind of flooded the engine by putting two teams in. And... Uh, uh, so it'll it will this will be a really interesting uh, prove it type year because you've got all the ingredients to make an interesting team with the Chargers, um, mm-hmm. starting with the quarterback and the stadium. And if they can't generate that interest, um, I don't know that they that they will. Now you say, hey, win a Super Bowl. Well, that's easier said than done, obviously, but. When the Angels won the World Series, there was a slight spike in interest, and then it disappeared again. Um, you know, when the Ducks win the Stanley Cup, there's a little interest, and then people fall off the cliff. So can, I think you have to have sustained winning like a New England situation to really get L.A. to fall in love with you. But it remains to be seen. I guess we'll, we'll figure that out this year. we the first – the next five years, we'll we'll sort of figure out, you know, can the Chargers make it here? Well, the Rams, I think, um, are are going to be discussed as one of the top teams in the NFC. And I just, you know, uh, how surprised first and foremost were you after giving him a large contract that that the Rams would um, would part ways with Jared Goff? You know, I wasn't uh, incredibly surprised just because. Um, it, it it really seemed like uh, Sean McVay was increasingly frustrated at the end of last season. Doff had thumb injury, and uh, I didn't realize there was quite the uh, parting of you know that we saw between those guys. But uh, they, uh, I, I like Jared Goff. I think he's a talented player. I don't think that he is the guy you're going to put the game on, on his shoulders and say, go win us this game. Um, he's the guy who, uh, when things are going well, uh, plays well, but had his share of struggles despite, you know, uh, and maybe in part because of the, the expectations and the, the contract and everything. Um, so uh, while I didn't predict that they were going to go out and sign Matthew Stafford or trade for Matthew Stafford, it didn't just shock me. I mean, it didn't uh, blow me away that, that uh, Sean McVay was going to – because the, the pressure is ramping up on Sean McVay too. Um, yeah. Set the expect, could not have set the expect, expectations higher than what he did in his first two seasons. And then uh, 
you know, they've, they've fallen short uh, in recent, in the last couple of years. So he needs to get out there and win and, and uh, he wants to. And, and I think Matthew Stafford is uh, uh, that's, that's a really intriguing one. I think he could be really good this year. And now that he has a running game, he has a defense and, uh, and some pretty good receivers, pretty good underrated receivers with the Rams. Uh, no doubt. Here's what I here's what I think. I think as Peter King would say, watching Tom Brady as a free agent. Of course, he was not somebody they had to trade for. But watching him select a team like Tampa Bay and then win a Super Bowl, even at his age of forty three, the next thing you know, Aaron Rodgers loses uh, to the Bucks, and you know his his coach doesn't go for it on on fourth and goal. And he talks about his future being a beautiful mystery. We know where that has led. Russell Wilson starts chirping, "Oh, I don't doesn't want out of Seattle," but gives them a list of teams that he would be willing to be traded to. Um, you know, and before Deshaun Watson got in the trouble he was in, he wanted out of the Houston Texans. Sam, I think I think quarterbacks in this league have figured out that they have they wield a lot of power. I don't know if it's quite as much as the NBA. Um, but what are we seeing now with with some of these guys being able to to influence some personnel decisions maybe down the line? Yeah, even even beyond quarterbacks, I think you see players in general. Uh, there are uh, power moves and player empowerment that's going on. Whether it's um, Antonio Brown, I mean, look at that situation. Now, obviously, yeah. that didn't go. Uh, um, the way anybody expected or wanted it to, but uh, that's a that's a player who uh, made a power move. Le'Veon Bell, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, th- th- I think this is a age of player empowerment, and you see players who, at the end of their career, can sort of redefine themselves. I mean, we saw that with um, to some extent with uh, with a Carson Palmer or. Even though he didn't win a Super Bowl, uh, you know Peyton the way the way he did this thing. I mean Tom Brady, what he mm-hmm. was able to do. Even a guy looking back at at a Rich Gannon, uh, who sort of redefined himself at his end of his career. I mean, thinking about Matthew Stafford, he has the ability to do that. And yeah, um, yeah I think guys look and they, and they say, "Look, I've made all the money that I'm ever going to need for the next several generations of my family." Um, I've got to be a mercenary here and go to the best situation. And, you know, Tom Brady's situation uh, was exhibit A for guys. Uh, that's, that's the ideal. You, you, you go to a beautiful place, you play for a coach you want to play for, you go win a Super Bowl. I mean, it's a fairy tale story. And, um, you know, not everybody's going to be able to do that, obviously, but, but that's the ideal. And, uh, uh, yeah. So with Aaron Rodgers, a perfect example, you know, does he wind up in a Denver or San Francisco or doing something like that? I mean, uh, personally, I think he's, I don't see him going back to the Packers. I, I think, I think that's his personality is he's intransigent about that. I saw a t-shirt that he was wearing that said, I'm offended. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, I just think I tweeted something about her. He was the offended player of the year. 
perfect. <laughs> so, yeah. So you know, it'll be uh, it'll be really interesting to see where he winds up. But uh, but I think it could be Denver, and that could be a great situation for him. Well, I'll get you out on this. Uh, I I imagine. You know Brady's golf game uh, coming off knee surgery may not be what he wants it to be. Um, he's going to play against Aaron Rodgers, of course. Bryson DeChambeau, who, whew, uh, that guy doesn't draw much attention, does he? Um, so, <laughs> what uh, what do you what do you make of these? I mean, this this seems like a fun thing, right? I mean, uh, it's going to take place, uh, you know, in July in Montana. I, I don't know; they're not going to have any fans there. Maybe that's a good thing. Um, I would like to see it. I hope they have media. We'll, we'll find out about that. But um, you know all those guys. I mean, you just talk about that. That those four gentlemen. You know, I love I love the uh, uh, these kind of wacky things. It's a little like Battle of Network Stars or mm-hmm. one of those sort of old shows. That uh, it's it's fun to see guys out of their element, and it was fun yeah. seeing. It humanized Tom Brady last year to see him struggle on the on the course and mm-hmm. and uh, uh, play like he did on those first six holes and see the frustration taking a ribbing from Charles Barkley. Uh, you know, I, I've um, followed Aaron out at the Tahoe tournament before, and I mean, just just a great. He's great at everything he does, basically, <laughs> and, and yeah. hand-eye coordination and everything. I think Tom Brady uh, is a much better golfer than he showed. And I think Phil, Mich- Phil Mickelson said that you saw it on the back yeah. at the match last year on the back nine. Um, DeChambeau is, um, you know, the whole thing, you know, Brooks Kepka talked about it this week and that he admitted that, listen, this back and forth between them, um, it's really good for golf and brings it in is. a lot of eyeballs. And mm-hmm. it, it adds sort of a pro wrestling element to the thing. And, mm-hmm. um, and so people are going to, who aren't necessarily golf fans are going to watch that. And uh, I'll definitely watch that, watch the match. And Phil, Phil Mickelson has a great uh, sense of humor and um, great at promoting stuff. So I, I think it'll be really fun to see and, and fun to see guys who are, I like Tom Brady, who are sort of, um, you know, uh, you don't see their flaws very often. So when you see their flaws and foibles like we did on the golf course, that's fascinating to see that. And it does humanize him. He's a little bit more like I am. Um, And so I'm wholeheartedly behind these things. Well, uh, I wish I was a little more like Sam Farmer because he does such a great job and, and has uh, had an unbelievable career, and you can follow him in the L.A. Times. He's a good friend for doing this while he's covering the U.S. Open. Sam, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it, buddy. It was great, Ray. On tomorrow's podcast, we're going to have Neil Solons from Ray's Radio on as uh, today's game at 4 o'clock against the Nationals will be uh, after that, that's game 81, so we are halfway through the Rays' season already. So we'll get a kind of a mid-season update from Neil Solance, and then uh, we'll also recap game two of the Stanley Cup final with Montreal and Tampa Bay tonight. The Lightning, of course, have a one-game-to-nothing lead after they won 5-1 to one on Monday night. So for Rick Stroud, who's on vacation, I'm Steve Versnick. Have a great day, everybody.